Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. A couple of weeks ago, um, I tweaked my back a little bit. Um, it wasn't a debilitating injury. I've had far worse. Um, I seemed to injure my back a lot, but it hurt. I'd move in certain ways, and it hurt. It would catch. And so I had a chiropractic appointment, and I told my chiropractor my problem, and he smirked knowingly. This is the umpteenth time I've had to bring my injuries to him. And he examined it and said, okay, this time it's your L5. I guess that's the lowest vertebrae on your back. And I twisted it out of place. And so he began the adjustment, adjusted one thing and then adjusted another. And then he got to the L5 and he did that adjustment. And that hurt. That hurt a lot. I yelped like a little puppy on that operating table or examination table. It hurt badly. And, you know, I've done this so many times, and it's not the first time that I've yelped in that kind of a pain. And my chiropractor, who knows me uh, much of this time, he, he has this way of apologizing. I know him. He says, oh, I'm sorry. I bet that hurt. That doesn't feel good to adjust that one. And I said, like every time, I said, don't apologize. Do what you got to do, doc. Do what you got to do. Because, see, I've come to trust this man that when he is caring for whatever injury I bring to him, and apparently I am as fragile as glass, every time I bring an injury to him, I know that he's not just hurting me to hurt me. I know that whatever pain he inflicts on me is not primarily this man hurting me. The, in, the injury is the source of the pain. This is a physician who is applying a very specific kind of operation to me that brings a certain amount of pain not to cause more pain or new injuries, but to bind up what is broken and to heal what is wounded, to fix what is injured in my body. And again, like so many times before, when I stood up, the pain was gone. He had healed me by the pain that he had put me through. 
Now, in the Bible, I think it's so interesting that God is so often putting people in uncomfortable situations, deliberately putting them in uncomfortable situations, shall we even say in painful situations. But it's not God hurting His people. It is rather God who is our great physician, applying a very specific remedy to His people to heal them at the exact point of their injury, again, to bind up what is broken, to heal what is wounded because of our sin and our lack of faith in God. And here exactly we see this in what Jesus is doing to His disciples. Why are these disciples out on a boat in the middle of a sea when their boat is assaulted, terrorized by these waves and the winds? It's because Jesus sent them there without His presence. So why is He doing this? Well, as we are going to see is because Jesus is healing the greatest need that they have, even though they don't entirely know that they have it. Jesus is healing their doubts and their lack of faith in Him. Our big idea then this morning is this, that Jesus saves us through storms. Jesus saves us through storms. And if you have a sermon worksheet or the sermon notes, forgive me, as I've worked on this a little bit since I printed those, I changed the preposition. Uh, so it's no longer Jesus saves us from storms. I, I think the, the through the storm is actually an important part of this. So I've changed a few of the prepositions. Forgive me, you can just scratch it out and keep going. Uh, but the big headings in the sermon today will be, number one, salvation through the storm. Salvation through the storm. And then number two, here's another slight change. Salvation by the Son of God. Salvation by the Son of God. And then third, Salvation from sickness. Salvation from sickness. So first again, salvation through the storm, looking at verses 22 through 27. But before we look at this, again, I think the context is helpful. This comes at the end of a very long day of ministry. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus had withdrawn from a particular area. What had happened? Well, his friend for so long, John the Baptist, a great partner in ministry, the forerunner to Jesus, had been murdered by Herod Antipas. And when Jesus heard this in verse 13, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He was grieving the loss of his friend, John the Baptist. But the solitude that Jesus sought as he sought to get away to be alone was very short-lived. The crowds heard of it, and they followed him on foot. Now, that began a very, very long day of ministry. We read that Jesus healed everyone in this crowd who came to him. And this was such a long day of ministry that at the end of this, Jesus' uh, disciples and the crowd around them were getting very, very hungry. Now, Jesus refuses to send them away at this point. Instead, Jesus continues to minister to their needs, and he feeds the 5,000 men who are there miraculously besides the women and the children. And it's only at this point, again, after a long day of individually healing all the people who had come to him after he himself had sought to get away to grieve the loss of John the Baptist, well, at the end of not only healing them, not only feeding them, now Jesus brings this long day of ministry to quite an abrupt ending. In verse 22, we read immediately. There's a very decisive aspect to this. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. Now, this word for made, I, I think, is a little softly or under-translated. It's a word that 
has to do with a command or an order. Jesus ordered the disciples to get into the boat and to go before him to the other side. I think that's very important. What happens from here happens because of the direct command of Jesus. It isn't that Jesus sort of stepped away from a moment and problems emerged. Jesus sends his disciples into the storm that they are about to face. We'll get back to them in a moment. Then, not only does Jesus order his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side, we read then this happened while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus also finally sent the crowds away. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus had sought out solitude, and he finally has it. Now, why does he seek out solitude? There are a lot of suggestions, and if you look at some of the other Gospels, you might get some other ideas from there. Uh, We read about this story in Matthew and Mark as well as John. But here what Matthew seems to highlight is that Jesus wanted to get away to pray. He wanted to be alone with his Father to pray. What does he pray about? Is he praying about his grief over the loss of John the Baptist? Is he praying for faithfulness to his mission? Is he praying for his disciples? Is he praying for all of the above? We don't know. What we are only told is that Matthew wants to put forward Jesus as a model of someone who seeks solitude in prayer. Jesus dedicates himself for this next phase of ministry, whatever it's going to involve, in prayer with his Father. Now, while Jesus is alone, His disciples are entering into a significantly difficult trial, a storm, a literal storm as well as a metaphorical spiritual storm. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Now, it was a long enough way from the land that they couldn't easily get back to the land. But if you know the size of this sea, and you know how far they were going and getting to the other side, what Matthew is telling us is they were getting nowhere very fast. Again, they were far away enough from the land that it wasn't easy to get back, but they were kind of out in the middle of the sea without any place to go, and and they were really working against the wind and the waves that were cutting against them. They were just hanging on for dear life here. The word here when we read that they were, their boat was beaten by the waves, this is a word that occurred earlier to describe the suffering of the servant of the centurion whom Jesus has to go healed. So it's an idea of suffering. Uh, it's translated a little stronger in Revelation 9 verse 5 as tormented, a demonic kind of tormenting. These disciples are in it. They are in a grievous trial. Now think about where they have come from and what's sort of still in the back of their mind as they're in the middle of this. They just watched Jesus spend the entire day using his miraculous divine power to heal everyone whom he laid his hands on. They just watched Jesus, not only that, but at the end of a long day of ministry, miraculously feed 5,000 people to meet their needs of hunger. But where is he now? Jesus was the one who ordered them, commanded them, get on the boat and go to the other side. Where is he now? And they're in the midst of this trial, and it's a grievous trial. And in fact, it's putting them in this uncomfortable, painful position, and one that lasts for a very, very long time. 
We read that they are in this position until, verse 25, the fourth watch of the night. Now, in those days, the night was divided into four watches. This is the last of four watches. This is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. So think about fighting the waves and the wind all night long until 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., right when it is darkest before the dawn, and they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, there's no way for Jesus to get to them now, is there? Here they are fighting the winds and the waves alone. Where is Jesus? And it's only at this point, late into the night, when their strength is spent, when all hope seems lost, again, this uncomfortable, painful place that they've been put in for a very long time, that Jesus comes to them. Here Jesus comes to them, but notice that even Jesus is coming to them is not at first a helpful kind of a thing, because when they see Jesus coming to him, they are terrified. He's just making matters worse by his appearance. They're terrified, and they say, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. It's so interesting that in verse 27, what Jesus does You know, if you've watched a movie when things are at their worst and you don't think help can come, but now help is on the way and he's arrived and what does he do? Of course he's going to still the storm, right? He doesn't still the storm. Do you notice that? He doesn't still the storm until the very end of this story, not until verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased at that point. But a lot more is going to happen with Jesus just leaving the situation as it is. And yet, Jesus comes bring to them the very thing that they need the most. What do they need the most? They need Him. They need Him. And so we read immediately, that's once again that word immediately. We saw it at the beginning of this passage in verse 22. It's just a slightly different form of the same word. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Our master, when he puts us in painful, uncomfortable positions, he's never just doing it. He's never doing it in order to inflict new injuries. The pain comes from the injuries that are already inflicted upon us because of our sin. Our physician is doing something to us to heal us. And what Jesus' disciples need in order to be healed is for Jesus to reveal himself who he is. And here that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now you may know that when Jesus says, it is I, that's not exactly an accurate translation. Very literally, Jesus says, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Now, why is that so important? It's because in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when the Lord revealed himself to his people, Israel, Moses, who was being sent as a deliverer for the people of Israel, asked the Lord, what should I tell the people about the name of the God who is sending me? And the Lord said, tell them, I am who I am has sent me. When the Lord speaks about his name, he says, I am. And that's what Jesus says here. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. I am the God of the Old Testament. But when we speak about the Lord... 
It's so interesting. We don't say something about the Lord. We can say things about the Lord. He is eternal. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is loving. But when the Lord speaks about himself, he simply says, I am. And when we speak about him, the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, literally means something like he is. It's hard when you're talking about the eternal, ever-living God to say more about him simply than he is. And when God speaks about himself, he says, I am. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Jesus is referencing this story back in the book of Exodus. Now, why? I think it's important to tease through why this is the case. Well, if you think about the people of Israel in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, think about where they are. They are in an uncomfortable, painful situation. They are in the land of bondage. They are under oppression. They are beaten, and they are put into hard labor to work for the Egyptians. And how long have they been there? For a very long time. The prophecy is that they would be there for 430 years in pain for a very long time. And they have to be thinking to themselves, where is the Lord who sent us here? Because originally, if you read the end of the book of Genesis, God is the one who tells Jacob to take his entire family down to Egypt. God is the one who sent his people into the furnace, into the storm. Where is he all this time? And one of the things the Lord says when he's talking to Moses and explaining why it's taken so long and what he is doing in the life of his people is he says, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. By the name I am or the name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that the Israelites didn't know that the name of their God was Yahweh. Moses' own mother was named Yah-Keved. Yahweh is Keved, glory. But Israel had only known God as God Almighty, the one who makes promises. They did not yet know God as the covenant-keeping God who would fulfill those promises. And what God was saying is this entire time, I have put you in a position where I have led you to trust me. And now is the time where you are going to see the fruit of that trust come to pass. I, the Lord, am coming to you to deliver you out of your bondage and your oppression, out of the, the furnace that you have been in, out of the storm. And I think to some degree or another, Jesus is reenacting this. He, the one who has sent his disciples into the storm, has waited in prayer, until the fourth watch of the night. And now he comes and says, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. He's revealing not only his power, especially in walking on water, but he's revealing his character. I am the one who has come to deliver you. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that it doesn't end here. In the other Gospels where we read about Jesus walking on the water, we only read about him walking on the water. But in Matthew, Matthew preserves this scene because, again, Matthew was one of the disciples on the boat who watched this happen. And Matthew tells us what happens next with a particular individual, Peter. And so we saw salvation through the storm. Jesus is saving his disciples through the storm. We're going to have to tease that out a little bit more as we go on. But now we come to the second section, salvation by the Son of God. In verse 28, we read Peter answering Jesus saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
Now, if you read the commentaries on this, this is really interesting because people differ as to whether Peter should have done this or not. Some say, look at Peter. He's an example of bold faith. This is what we need to do. We need to get out of the boat. Or, on the other hand, you say, Peter, what are you doing? This was foolish. Uh, This was excessive haste, as one commentator puts it. Or is it both? Is there some commendable, some things that's not so commendable? Matthew doesn't really answer that question for us. In verse 29, we only read about the response of Jesus. He said, come. Now, in this, Jesus is not commending Peter. Well done, good and faithful servant. Nor is he rebuking Peter, at least yet. He actually will do that in just a little bit. But he simply says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. It's an extraordinary miracle. Peter, believing in the Lord, following the bidding of the Lord, gets out of the boat and walks on water. It's not just Jesus who does this. Peter does this. But then very quickly, it starts to fall apart. Because in verse 30, we read that when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Now, this is a very important point. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. This is the same word for save, salvation, that we find throughout the New Testament. He's praying for Jesus to save him. Now, don't over-spiritualize this. He's, he's drowning, and so he's asking for Jesus to rescue him from drowning. Yes. However, there's a wider application here. He's crying out to the Lord to save him, and it's so interesting to see Jesus in this passage and how easy it is. One commentator points it out. Jesus doesn't, you know, dive in after him, and it's this dramatic thing where he's bringing him up, you know, at, at, like you might see in, a, in the movies of someone being saved from a drowning thing. Jesus reaches out, we're told, with just one hand and just picks him up and just picks him up. This is so simple for Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, what are we to make of Peter? Again, I want to raise that question. Well, I don't want to be too hard on Peter. For most all of Peter's life, except when he denies Jesus, Peter makes the kind of mistakes that I want to make in life. If my life were characterized by the kind of bold, ambitious, I will do anything for Jesus mistakes, I would have such a great life. Peter is such a model for us in so many ways. I don't want to condemn him here. I don't know what was going on in his heart, and I don't know what Jesus was trying to bring out of his heart. What I see when I look in this passage is Jesus dealing individual with one, individually with the heart of one of his disciples. Whatever Peter needed in that moment, in his own personal individual discipleship, Jesus was treating it directly. He said, come. And Peter came, and Peter found the limits of his faith, and Jesus saved him. And then Jesus had this conversation, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt But where all of this is leading is not in Peter's act of daring and moving out of the boat onto the water. Where all this is leading in verses 32 and 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Again, this whole time up to now, the wind has been raging. The waves have been beating, tormenting the boat. It's only now that when Jesus gets in the boat 
that everything calms. Jesus has been saving his people through this storm. Look at what Jesus is after in verse 33. The climax of this story, the high point of this story is in verse 33. We read, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Why didn't they say that earlier? Why didn't they say that when Jesus had healed sick person after sick person after sick person after sick person for an entire day? Why didn't they worship him and say, truly, you are the Son of God when Jesus fed the 5,000? I don't know. But there was something in their soul, something in their heart that wasn't quite there yet. There was an injury, there was a wound that had to be bound up and healed, and Jesus put them in the exact position to deal with their injury. Our Lord does not hurt His people. He helps His people. But in the process of the treatment, sometimes that helping hurts us. Not in a bad way. We have to be hurt in order to be helped. Because it's not that our physician is hurting us, it's the injury that hurts us. And Jesus is treating us so that we get to the place that we need to be to worship Him, claiming truly, You are the Son of God. Now, I want to make one more observation about this before we move on to the third section. Notice that none of the other disciples get out of the boat. I think sometimes in the church we're tempted to think that unless we are doing something truly extraordinary, that our trials aren't really that big of a deal. If I'm not seeking the extra credit assignments, then maybe the difficulties of my life don't actually count. Peter is the one who maybe should get the credit here, and the rest of the disciples, why didn't they get out of the boat? You may not be judging the disciples that way, but you might be judging your own life that way. Why would my family difficulties matter? Why would my difficulties at work matter? Why would my difficulties in my neighborhood matter? They're not that big of a deal. I'm not going to Zambia for all, after all. But Jesus is showing us that wherever He leads us, our trials are significant. He leads us there for a purpose. Some of us, he does lead to Zambia. But others, he leaves right here and puts us in the exact kind of trials that he wants us because he is dealing individually, not just with Peter, with each of us. Do you realize in your trial that you're not just floundering alone, but that Jesus has been spending this time praying for you? Well, let's come to the third section. In the third section, there are a couple of questions that maybe hang over this passage that we need to tie up loose ends. It'd be hard to put this as a standalone passage and to preach about it, so we're just tacking it on to the earlier story. It, it hangs together, more or less. Salvation from sickness, uh, Matthew 14, verses 34 through 36. Here we read Jesus getting to the other side, landing at a place called Gennesaret, getting out, and once again, people know Jesus. Now we think, well, of course they would recognize him. They must have seen him on Twitter or X or something. Uh, of course they would know who this is. They read about him in the newspaper at the least. This isn't the way it worked then. We're reading a time where Jesus' fame is rising, 
And that's drawing him positive attention, and that is drawing him negative attention. That's what this section of the Gospel of Matthew is about. It's about Jesus rising in notoriety, where people are responding in very different ways, positively or negatively. And Jesus is always asking the question, is it safe to minister here, and will people want to be ministered to me by here, or by me to them here? Yes, sorry. So here we see Jesus asking these questions because if he goes to the wrong place, he might suffer the same fate as John the Baptist has. And Jesus cannot be killed until the time comes for him to go to the cross. But here we see people are recognizing him, and people are bringing their sick to him. They know who this is, and they're asking him to just touch the fringe of his garment. This is the same way the woman with the discharge of blood was healed. She just touched the fringe of his garment, and that's what they're doing with Jesus. And as many as touched it were made well. What we see here, again, is the great physician dealing individually with more souls. He will not stop his mission. The great physician has come to heal the sick, and this is what he will continue to do. So what's our application here? Our application through this story is this. Wait expectantly for Jesus to save you through your storms. Wait expectantly for Jesus to save you through your storms. It is fascinating to study the Bible and to see how often God makes His people wait. To wait. Noah had to wait for the coming of the flood while he built the ark, subject to the ridicule and the despising of the people around him. And then when he was in the ark, he had to wait so many days for the waters to recede. Stir crazy. Got to get out of that boat. Abraham had to wait for years and years and years for the fulfillment of the promise with the birth of his son Isaac. Joseph had to wait as God continued providentially to lead him to a lower and lower and lower place until he would be exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses had to wait, just as the Israelites had to wait 430 years to be brought out of Egypt. Moses had to wait the first 40 years of his life before he was called to ministry, the next 40 years of his life to be prepared for ministry out in the wilderness. And only then could he go to Egypt to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses had a life of waiting. And here the disciples have to wait until the fourth watch of the night for Jesus to come. As we wait for Jesus to deliver us, one of the things that we have to draw from this passage is that He is not doing nothing. Let me put this in a positive way. He is doing something, the most important thing for us. Our Lord is praying for us. We see Jesus doing here exactly what He is doing for us now. He's praying, and I think we have to conclude that whatever else Jesus may have prayed for, He was praying for His disciples. When Peter was going to be handed over to temptation to deny Jesus later on. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? I will pray for you. I have prayed for you. When Jesus' people go into times of trial and trouble, Jesus prays for us. Now, does that sound like maybe not a great thing for us? Understand that is absolutely everything. That's one of the most precious promises we have in the Bible from Hebrews 7.25. That consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since 
He always lives to make intercession for them, to pray for them. This morning, you may be in a storm in your life, in your personal life, in your family, in work or school. There are so many places that we encounter the squalls and the storms of life. And maybe you're at a place where you're thinking back on the ways that Jesus has acted powerfully, maybe in your life, maybe in lives of people that you have seen. But right now, you feel alone. You feel alone on a boat, tossed and tormented by the waves and wondering, where is He? Where is Jesus? Take heart. He's praying for you. He hasn't forgotten you. Your Lord knows exactly where you are, and He is interceding for you. That's not just offering some hopes and prayers in your direction. This is Jesus pleading on behalf of His own shed blood and righteousness for us, advocating for you. This is Jesus laying claim for you of what He has already purchased for you, namely your healing from the entirety of your sin and the curse that it has racked on your body and your soul. And as you wait and as you work, Jesus is bringing about the fullness of your salvation. Showing you like Israel and Egypt that all this time He has seen you. He has heard you. He has known you. He has remembered you. And that nothing can distract Jesus from His mission in this world to save you to the uttermost. If you know Jesus, this is a place of hope and of great encouragement and strength. But if you don't know Jesus, these are promises that you may lay claim to, but that are not yet yours today. If you don't yet know Jesus, the promise of the Scriptures is that for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, you will not be put to shame. That Jesus will save you. Like Peter crying out, save me, Lord. If that's your cry of your heart this morning, understand Jesus answers that prayer. And it's so easy for him. Not because what he went through was easy, but because he has already done what is most difficult. He has already taken upon himself a human nature, suffered, was beaten, crucified. He died. And he was under the power of death for three days until everything was accomplished for him to rise from the dead in victory over your sin, over your death, and over the devil. Jesus stands ready to save. And if you don't think he can do so, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Turn to Jesus. This is what he does. The great physician heals his people. But you must embrace it this morning, or you have no hope. Or at the end of this life, you will be left alone and cast away into eternal darkness. Don't leave yourself in that position. Cry out to Jesus this morning. Let's go to Him all now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would lead us to trust You in the difficulties and storms of our lives. We pray that wherever we are, you would lead us to an unshakable confidence in your Son, our Savior. And we pray that as we come to Christ this morning, that he would 
encourage us, that He would bind us up, that He would heal us, that He would forgive us and cleanse us of our sins to the uttermost. Heal us not for what we have done, but because of what our great high priest has done on our behalf and what he right now praying for us, interceding for us, is laying claim from you by the virtue of his blood and righteousness. Hear our prayers through the great power and merit of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.